I'm grateful to get the opportunity to, to preach to you all. It's, it's, it's been a long time, and I want to thank Chris and the elders for giving me the chance to fill the pulpit again. If you are uh, new or visiting here, my name is Blake Dozier, and I've been a part of this family since it was planted in 95. And i got to say, it's a pretty special place, and I'm confident you'll see that if you will stick around. Chris McCurley is our regular pulpit minister. He's so good, we gave him two pulpits. So um, he'll be back with us next week, and so you'll want to join us for that. This week, you're stuck with me. We're going to wrestle with a passage from the Old Testament that at first reading is a, is a solid, feel-good devotional passage. At second reading, becomes pretty troubling. And, and if you'll stick with me with a little meditation and study, I believe it becomes a, a glorious, life-changing testament to the reality of life lived with God. So I hope you'll take this journey with me this morning. The first time the word television was used was 121 years ago at the World's Fair in Paris. But it was the late 1930s before the technology was developed enough to be used in a handful of homes. And by 1940, get this, they'd figured out how to get 343 lines of resolution on a black and white television. Now, I grew up in the age of color television, as did some of you. From my brief research, it looks like that consumers could actually get and use color. Am I cutting it out? Move over there. This one's been neglected by the pulpit minister for a while anyway, so it needs a little attention. <clears throat> All right. So where were we at? We had 343 lines of resolution in this fancy black and white television. And, and me, I got to grow up in the age of color television. Um, looks like it was the 1930s before the technology was available to have um, TVs and homes. It was the 1950s before color television technology was available. And it was the mid-70s before half of the homes in this part of the world had color sets in their house. Nowadays, you would be hard-pressed to find an old black and white television. We have televisions the size of movie screens in our living room. And they have, it seems like every year the resolution gets better, the color gets better. We're getting really good at getting closer and closer to duplicating reality with these television sets. I titled my lesson today, Life in Color. Seeing Life in Color. You know, the development of television technology was a whirlwind of change. And where we are today is far superior when it comes to representing reality than could ever have been imagined 120 years ago. I don't think we will ever make a television that accurately represents reality for what it is. But we sure are better at it now than when we started. Church, reading the Bible does this for your soul. <clears throat> Perhaps on this side of eternity, we will never be able to really see reality exactly for what it is. But when we open this book and we start to wrestle with the things God tells us, we get to fast forward through a whirlwind of human history and we get to see life with a level of clarity that I believe is supernatural. God lets us see in color when the rest of the world is stuck in black and white. For us, he accomplishes this with scripture. But for a young man thousands of years ago, he actually used a robe of many colors. 
We're going to go way, way back in time this morning to the life of a young man named Joseph, whose story many of you know, and whose coat of many colors got him in hot water with his jealous herd of brothers. So while they saw very clearly the colors of Joseph's coat, it was Joseph in this story who saw life for how it really is. It was Joseph who wrapped his mind around the glorious reality that clothed him on a daily basis. And this is what I hope I will help you see this morning. God started revealing this in the book of Genesis, and the reality screams at us throughout all of Scripture. There was a man named Israel who had 12 sons. Hey, Israel would be the, the founding father of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And these 12 sons were going to be the figureheads after which the 12 tribes of Israel were fashioned. And the 11th son was a young man named Joseph. And his story spans scripture beginning in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. So it takes up a significant amount of real estate in the book of Genesis. Joseph was his father's favorite. And his father didn't hide that very well. He gave him this fancy coat of many colors that wasn't a gift that was given to the other brothers. And then as if to add insult to injury, Joseph started having some dreams about that he interpreted as the rest of his family bowing down to him. True as this was, it didn't set well with his brothers. And resentment began to fester. So much so that they concocted a plan to murder Joseph. They were talked out of it by the last minute by one of his brothers, and instead they sold him into slavery. They fabricated evidence so they could lie to his father about him being killed by a wild animal. And while Joseph went off on this roller coaster ride of life, his brothers went back to the peace and security of comfort and their mourning father. They were pretty terrible human beings. The story gets worse, though. Joseph is eventually sold to a man named Potiphar, and through the blessings of God, the blessings of God carried out through Joseph's wisdom and work ethic, he rises to the role of a supervisor in Potiphar's household. But Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph and attempts to seduce him. And when her final plan is averted due to Joseph literally fleeing from sexual immorality, she lies about him trying to force himself upon her, and he finds himself yet again in an unfair and unjust situation, locked up in prison. So here he is in jail, things looking pretty bleak, until he gets the opportunity to interpret some dreams for two of the prisoners. It's almost like maybe God's given him a ticket out of jail, but the one man who's seen Joseph's character and the special blessings of God that could do something about it, when he gets out, he promptly forgets about Joseph, and he's stuck there for another two years, wasting away in prison. Joseph's finally released, and he's given the position of second in command in all of Egypt when God allows him to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. He accurately predicts a coming famine and gives this nation time to prepare enough food to preserve people and establish their wealth and their prominence. And this is where our story starts to come full circle. It's during these years of, of famine that Joseph's family begins to starve back home. And Israel sends his son to Egypt in search of food. And it appears that everything's going to circle around. And instead of serving justice, Joseph gives them food. And he brings them to Egypt. And he establishes them in this new land with wealth and food security and prominence. 
It's really a beautiful story of forgiveness. And I retell it this morning because I want to establish an important fact as we start today's, today's discussion. Joseph suffered terribly at the hands of other humans. Joseph's brothers were terrible. Potiphar's wife was terrible. His friend from prison was terrible. He conducted himself with integrity. And he was treated with hate and unfairness. His brothers knew this. And as we get to the end of Joseph's story, his father has passed away. And they're starting to sweat it a little bit. They're thinking, maybe Joseph's going to remember how awful we really were. And that brings us to our key text, Genesis chapter 50. And we're going to read verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now... Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So... Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This morning we're going to zoom in on Joseph's, Joseph's words in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. At first reading, this is a powerful reminder to us about the importance of forgiveness. This is not exactly how we would act in this situation, I don't think. I don't think this is how we would counsel a friend to act. In fact, I think most of us believe that Joseph would have been justified in seeking justice. His brothers were terrible to him, and it appears that God has put him in a place to do something about it. Instead, Joseph displays for us the bold, counterintuitive approach to life that a follower of God should have. And I thought to myself, cool beans, that's going to make a good sermon. I'm going to preach on that. So I told Chris, and then I kept reading it, and then I thought, man, what have I gotten myself into? This passage is tough. Because as I start reading it a little slower and I, and I start thinking about it, Let's look at it again. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Remember I said we're going to go on a journey? Well, we've arrived to the troubling part because the text doesn't say that God took their evil intentions and transformed them into good. Instead, it implies that God was much more involved every step of the way. He wasn't simply reacting to the sinful actions of his brothers by transforming them into a positive end result. Joseph seems to believe that he was involved from the beginning for a good purpose. Does that bother you? 
We don't generally let God interact so closely with what we perceive as evil. Look at the text again. Look at what it says. Our theology differs pretty significantly from Joseph's. We seem to believe that God is a God who makes lemonade out of lemons. And Joseph would say that God made lemons and lemonade. We would say, you meant evil, but God made it good. And Joseph said, you meant evil, God meant good. How do you feel about that? That makes me ask some really difficult questions. Namely, does this mean God has meant for some of the painful things in my life to happen to me? That's a big question. And, and I don't ask it lightly, because I know many of you have suffered greatly in various ways. And dare I stand up here and tell you God had a hand in it. I don't think I should tell you anything. I think we should look and see if Joseph's theology is consistent with the rest of Scripture. So we could begin by surveying the Old Testament. And what we would see is that evil after evil was redeemed for the purpose of demonstrating God's glory and bringing his son Jesus into the world. Sexual indiscretions, greed, corrupt politics, overt disobedience and idolatry are a few of the things I can think of that became an important and pivotal part of God's process of redeeming mankind. Even at that, Joseph's story is unique because of how it talks about God's role in the circumstances around him. So I turn to the New Testament, our guiding document for the New Covenant. What does it say about it? Um, I'm going to put four passages up on the screen. might take a picture of that with your phone because we're not going to have time to unpack these completely. And I'd like for you to spend some time on your own reading them. Each one of these could be a sermon series in and of itself. Um, But we're going to read good portions of each of these and see what it has to say. Let's start in Hebrews chapter 12. Take a look at verses 3 through 11. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. It's not going to be on the screen, so you've got to look it up. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Mine was here this morning, and he would tell you he gave me a lot of spankings. I'm thankful for it. I wouldn't be standing up here if it wasn't for that. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits, and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
At the beginning of this passage, he puts Jesus up as the example of suffering, as an encouragement for us when we suffer. Why? Because the text says God uses suffering as a training tool for us. He says it is for our good. And while it might seem painful, it has a bigger purpose so that we may produce the fruit of righteousness and share in his holiness because of his love for us. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. See what it has to say. It's one of my favorite passages. We're going to read uh, verse 7, 8, and 9, and then we're going to skip down to 16. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In this passage, we see that something happens in our suffering. Verse 7 says that it shows the power belongs to God and not to us. Suffering exposes our weakness, and it exposes his ability to crush evil and exposes his glory. And again, we see in verse 17, suffering is preparing us for something bigger. This light, momentary affliction is a tool God is using to prepare us for an indescribable, eternal weight of glory. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. I like James. He uses super plain language. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, he says, perfection and completion are not a result of a life lived in comfort. They grow out of the trials that we face with joy. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to end with this passage. We'll read uh, the first couple of verses and then skip down. Starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This one also has a forward-looking perspective. Paul teaches that the suffering and futility of this present age is intentionally done by God as an act of love in the process of redeeming his people. The sufferings we experience are like labor pains, 
terrible in the midst, but bringing as their fruit an indescribable joy. His promise is stated very clearly in verse 28. Not in some things, in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called to his purpose. He goes on towards the end of the passage, which we didn't have time to read, to talk about how nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing natural, nothing supernatural, no human, no disaster. Nothing is exempt from these claims. So, I wish that I could stand up here in front of you and vindicate God of all involvement in any amount of human pain. But I can't do that because Scripture does not. I don't completely understand how it works, and I have a lot of questions. But I do believe we're given enough information in Scripture to understand a really big and really important point that trumps our discomfort with this teaching. We serve a God who has power over everything. And he is making it good for his people in his time and in his way. Church, no amount of pain or suffering or evil can defeat or break a child of God. It is temporary. It is preparing us for something better. And it is under God's control and discretion just like everything else. And to submit to this reality requires two important mindsets. It requires an understanding of the difference in temporary and eternal. And it requires a heavy dose of humility. This life and all that comes with it is temporary. We already read it in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. It speaks of this difference in temporary and eternal. Um, it says this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for what? An eternal weight of glory. If you step out into the parking lot as you're leaving and you look down on the ground, you'll find the asphalt is made up of billions and billions of tiny little pebbles. And the road all the way home is made up of the same thing. And if you could envision a road that circled the globe a thousand times and spiraled around, and from that road you could pick out one tiny little pebble and say, this is my life. Eternity would dwarf anything, any road that you can imagine. Okay? In light of eternity, our life doesn't even register on the timeline and neither will your suffering but that doesn't help much when life hurts because we aren't to eternity yet it doesn't feel that way all of the time so what's going to get us through these times is a very important attitude that joseph held it's easy to miss but it was central to his theology and it comes from verse 19 in Genesis chapter 50. Joseph asks a rhetorical question. He says, am I in the place of God? No, no, you're not. You are not God. Job was reminded of this in his suffering. In Job 38, 1 through 4, God appears to the broken and suffering Job in a storm. And he, he thunders out of the storm. He says, what does he say? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you have understanding? Tell me. And then for chapter after chapter, he goes on. And, and he goes on this rant, and he makes very clear the difference in being human and being deity. And Job, in 42.2, repents, and he responds, God, I know you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
God tells us through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45, 7-9, a passage that Paul remembered and referred to in the book of Romans. God says this, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Your work has no handles. Listen to me this morning. You aren't God. You weren't there when he made the earth. You don't understand how it works. You may be made in his image, but you're not like him. You're the created. You're the clay and he's the potter. We have to tread lightly with these thoughts he has permitted us to hold. Micah 6.8 states it like this. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? It's when we get this attitude of humility, the key characteristic Joseph held in place that our journey can continue from feeling good to troubling to a glorious life-changing testament to the realities of life with God. Church, I don't understand how it works. I don't have all the answers, but I see that it does. I see that it does in Scripture. I see that it does in my life. I see that it does in your lives. Because of who God is and what He is doing, we can seize our striving and we can rest in His presence. And we don't have to understand. We have been given all that we need to confidently rest in Him. Why? Because God is good. God is in the business of crushing evil with good. And it has to be frustrating to be Satan. Can you imagine? The most evil thing that he can muster, God laughs at and uses it to redeem all of humanity. When God sent his son in human form to live among men, Satan used the sinfulness of God's chosen people. The very people back in Genesis he was working to save and restore and preserve. And Satan used them to be the people who would reject his son and they would murder him in the most brutal way possible. It was the lowest blow that Satan could muster and it was going to seal the deal. But God meant good and when God means good, good happens. Jesus became the final, eternal, and life-giving sacrifice for all of humanity. And God raised him from the dead. And because of this, we get to go to heaven. When I first started studying this passage, I saw myself as Joseph. And the more I studied, the more I realized I'm not Joseph in this passage. I'm one of the brothers. I'm the evil brother with evil intentions and sin spewing over in my life like an oozing sore. But God meant good. And our knee-jerk reaction is to explain away Joseph's theology. To say, yeah, I know it says that, but don't, don't do that to me. Don't do that to you because the second you do is the second you sink. Because we desperately need a God who is in control and means good. And scripture shows us this is what we have. With one condition. You have to be part of his family. Romans 8.28 says God works for good for those who love him and have been called to his purpose. Genesis 50.20 makes it clear that God was preserving his people. The Egyptians might have benefited, but their benefit was temporary and it was secondary. There was no hope because the Egyptians were not part of something bigger. 
If you are not a Christian, this promise is not for you. When you experience good as a non-believer, it's because you live in a world that God, God is redeeming, but your experience is happenstance and it is momentary and you're no better off than the, than the Egyptians because when you experience pain and suffering as an outsider, it's hopeless. There's no good in it. God is not working through that difficulty on your behalf. He's not preparing you for anything, and there will be no redemption of that pain. You might as well embrace the bitterness and the questioning. But if you are a Christian, if you're a member of God's family, if you love him, you have something glorious to hold on to. When life is difficult, and it's not going the way you think it should or the way that you thought it would, you can do exactly what Joseph did. You can name that reality. His brother's meant evil, and he didn't back down from that. Things can be bad, and they can hurt, and you can dislike them, and you can acknowledge that, and you can cry, and you can mourn, and you can well, and you can be in pain, because none of that is unbiblical. But then you also get to say, Am I God? He has always been faithful to work things out for the good of those who love him. I don't understand, but, but he is going to make this good. Even better than it would have been otherwise. Somehow, some way, because he's promised me this and he has shown me this. And I will patiently and humbly wait for the good he means to be revealed. That is a glorious, freeing way to experience life. The ability to let go and let God take this dust and press it into a diamond. Diamonds are made under intense pressure and heat. And so are holy, obedient children prepared for eternity. When you can see that, I believe you're seeing life in color. There are some things about life that TV cannot and will never duplicate. But with each development of technology, it gets closer. There are things about this life we will never understand as created beings, but each moment spent in God's word gets us closer. Joseph saw life in color because the world around, as the world around him saw it in black and white. And, and God shares this story with us so that we can see it too. God is good, and he means good for his people in all things. Even, and might I say, especially in the difficult. I encourage you to start looking for it. You just might be blessed enough to get a glimpse on this side of eternity. And even if you never do, Scripture's clear. You're going to see it on the other side. The invitation is open to all. As we sing this next song, we invite you to come forward. If you need prayers or support, we have hope, but it doesn't make life easy. As a family, we're here for you, and we want to know what you're going through so we can pray for you, so we can encourage you. If you are not a Christian, we would love to study with you. And if you understand the importance of baptism and becoming a Christian, I don't know why you would wait. The waters are ready, and we hope that you will make the leap from hopeless to hopeful. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.